being a human is really hard and no one teaches us how to do it. There's not like this manual where we show up and it's like, here is how are you human? No, we figure it out together. I learn how to human better because I'm talking to you, John, you've taught me how you human. And then I'm like, okay, well, that, that makes me think I could human this way in my life. And I show up and I tell you guys how I human. And then you've kind of figured it out. We are grand experiments in a lot of ways of spiritual beings having human experience. And I think one of the greatest myths that the industrial revolution and the enlightenment gave us is that we're supposed to know what we're doing. Mm. Like wow. I, we, we have no clue and that's okay. We're going to figure it out together and we're going to work it out together. Hey everybody, John Chisholm here. Welcome to the All the Best podcast. It's my own special blend of motivation and devotion designed to help you find all the best in life. I just believe there's always a way to make your life better. I want to help you get there. Nothing's going to be off limits in this show. We're going to talk to amazing people from all kinds of backgrounds, beliefs, and points of view. We're going to be bringing you insights, advice, and inspiration to guide you into the coolest chapters of your life and maybe help you actually enjoy your time here on planet Earth. So buckle up, kids. This is going to be fun. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of All the Best. My goal with this show is to bring you a lot of different people from all kinds of faith and spiritual backgrounds, different religions and lifestyles, people with unique perspectives and experiences that may not be your own, because I believe that we learn the best when we're challenged. If we just stay in our own little life bubble, we're not going to make the world a better place. And I just don't want to miss the opportunity to love people no matter if they agree with me or me with them. It's all about the love that we need to share, and I hope that you feel that way too. Well, today's guest is Dr. Kristen Donnelly, and she is a three-time TEDx speaker and international empathy educator and researcher with two decades of experience in helping people understand the beauty and difference and the power in inclusivity. She's one of the good doctors of Abbey Research, She's the COO of their parent company and an unapologetic nerd for stories of change. I, I love this conversation because we talk about white privilege and what our whiteness means. We didn't shy away from the awkwardness of the topic, and Kristen really helped me come to terms with some of my own inadequate ways of approaching it. Kristen lives outside of Philly with her husband, where they're surrounded by piles of books, she says, and several video game consoles, and that sounds like a fun place to be. She's very positive, upbeat, extremely knowledgeable in a fun way, and our conversation is a blast. So again, thanks for being here. I hope that you'll share this and all of our episodes with your family and friends, because I know you want all the best for them, too. So without further delay, here's one of the good doctors at Abbey Research, my new best friend, Dr. Kristen Donnelly. Dr. Kristen Donnelly, welcome to All the Best. Oh, gosh, John, thank you so much for having me. I just feel like we're already BFFs, which Absolutely. I love. I love. I've been kind of boning up on who you are, you and Dr. Aaron, and all that you guys are about at Abbey Research. And I just can't wait to bring you to my All the Best audience and to 
expose them to your very valuable work, your three TED Talks, your YouTubes, the podcast, everything that you're doing. So take us into the genesis of this whole thing and who you guys are. Oh, oh my gosh, we'd love to. So the first thing first is that we're best friends and that yes, working with your best friend is an adventure, but it's one that works really well for us. So my family has owned a business for about 30-ish years. And the kind of true genesis of all of this is that my family business is a network of different companies, but they all exist to impact lives and create wealth. And as we, and we are, we are faith-based people. And so that's where it comes from for us. It's not out of a nobility. It's out of a, this is why we believe we've been put on the planet. So for the first 25-ish years, we did that exclusively through manufacturing in some way, shape, or form. And still our flagship company located in Philadelphia is a dye manufacturer. We make dyes and color. We make the stains that diagnose cancer, for instance. And mm. we make the color for the outside of Advil. And our philosophy has always been to essentially work with humans. And I know that sounds really trite, but it's going to help me explain where we kind of went from there. So I was raised with this understanding that no matter what someone looks like, no matter the choices they've made, no matter what choices have been made for them, they are a human person who is imbued with dignity, respect, and worth. And you need to treat them as such. And that's been the foundation of my life. And so regardless of where I was in the world or what profession I was holding, that's the family foundation. So I went, uh, I have a couple of master's degrees from uh, a university in Texas. And then I went and I decided it was time to do my PhD because I was really interested in the question of how what people believe affects how they live. And fundamentally, that's one of my driving questions of life. What, how does what you believe about yourself, about the world around you, about deity, if you have one, how does that affect how you live your day-to-day -day interactions? And a, no one should do a PhD unless they have a question that needs answered, that they need access to a library to answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> and if they get funding. And I had both of those things. So off I went to Northern Ireland. And there's a long story as to why I went there. Then Aaron and I met, we were both in international student housing at Queen's University Belfast and doing our PhDs. Hers is in anthropology, and she focused on identity formation in among political prisoners in the Northern Irish Troubles. Wow. Using handicrafts. And then I focused on researching a congregation that was, for Northern Irish standards, very, very liberal, a Protestant, liberal Protestant congregation, mm. and what gender looked like in that congregation. Mm, so wow. all throughout this, you can imagine that a lot of our conversations were about humanity, the two of us together. She is sitting across the table from people who were in prison for murder. I'm spending my time with people who other Christians would say aren't really Christians. Right. And, right. You know, and how do we navigate humanity? So we finish our PhDs. We both realize that the higher ed world is not for us. We find it predatory and abusive to, to a lot of people's labor. So we left and I, my brother and I talked about me starting a division within my family company. So in the light of how do we impact lives and create wealth, I started Abbey Research in 2015 using the skills that I have as a people interpreter. My mas one of my masters is in social work, but also this incredible training that we got from a world-class research institution about how to analyze society how to understand how humans fit into systems, how systems impact humans, how humans build those systems, all of those things. That's really what our PhDs were. So how do we take that and then serve the marketplace? How do we, how do we help small businesses? How do we help parents? How do we help pastors? How do we help teenagers figuring themselves out? 
And over that was in 2015. Erin joined me full time in 2017. Uh, she, she, t- she finished up her PhD a little bit after me. And we just kept having these conversations about what would it look like? What does it look like? So we, you know, we were we've been professionally together for four years. We've been best friends for 10. And in the last couple of years, really, as so many other people did, 2020 was watershed for us. And as we looked around at our our friends, the friends of our parents and our and everybody else, what we realized is that everybody was under this assumption that to be a good person meant that you had to be empathetic, which meant that you had to know how someone else felt. And I, I'm part of my PhD is in language. And I sat back and I said, well, let's talk about that word feeling. It's actually not possible to know how someone else feels <laughs> because I don't know how I feel most days. And are we really sure that empathy is anything to do with emotions? Or is that just something we all keep telling each other? So during lockdown, while we were, you know, kind of not traveling, not speaking, not at companies, we started a research project and we started looking around the world at different dictionaries and all the languages that we can speak. And we realized that some of some of the definitions of empathy have emotion in them, that word. Mm-hmm. But all of them have the word understanding. And so we stripped that back and we thought and we talked and we did some research. We talked to both like secondary research and talking to sources, but we also called a lot of people and had some informal interviews. And what we've come down to is that empathy truly is understanding yourself and others. It's a consistent discipline. It's a choice to choose understanding over assumptions about yourself and other people so that we could all have richer human experiences. Wow. And that's now what we teach. That is amazing. I mean, I'd like for you to unpack that just a little bit more. And I bet you can, (laughs) that that empathy is really a discipline that we can develop in seeking greater understanding of ourselves and others. Where, Where do you start with something like that? Wherever you want. Start somewhere. One of my big contentions is that in the last couple of years, a lot of us have been made to feel guilty for things we didn't know or the person we once were. And guilt is an unproductive emotion. That's not meaning that we should not be held accountable for actions we took in the past, potentially, but that doesn't mean that we should feel guilty about them. Guilt and accountability are different things. Mm. So what I would say is that at just about every day of your life, you're doing your, you're doing your best, you're doing a great job, and you're learning things. And tomorrow you knows things that yesterday you didn't know. Stop holding yesterday you to an account that they, a standard that they don't, they're never going to meet. Mm-hmm. Stop wringing your hands over what you should have done and just move forward. The story we tell a lot is that in early 2021, when there was the terrorist attacks on the Asian spas in Georgia, what Aaron and I realized is that we knew very little about the Asian American experience outside of cuisine and that we enjoyed generally right. all of the various Absolutely. Asian cuisine. Yeah, right. And so we called a friend of ours who's married to Cambodian immigrant, uh, Cambodian refugee, actually. And we said, OK, Cheryl, so where do we start? And she said, oh, well, I'm sure you've seen the PBS documentary. And I was like, I'm sorry, the what now? And she was like, oh, you, that's where you start. It's six hours. It's on PBS. It's free until 2033. It's literally called Asian America. And it will walk you through the six major waves of Asian immigration to America and what that looks like for them. Start there. Give, give, give six hours to that question and start there. And so Aaron and I were, as we watched those six hours, which are impeccably done, by the way, highly recommend those six hours. Mm. We fought all the emotions. We felt guilty that we didn't know things. We felt embarrassed that we Mm -hmm. didn't know things. We felt overwhelmed with how unequal the system has always been. 
And as we talked it out, what we realized is that we never notice these things because the system in America is built that we don't see it. If you don't know that things are broken, it's because the system works to keep you in power. Mm. And that doesn't, you not knowing that things are broken doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It just means that you've got some privilege. Cool. You can now spend that to, to you can leverage your privilege for the power of others. No shame that you didn't in the past. But now you can start fresh. So my answer is, how do you understand yourself and others? You start somewhere. Pick a thing. Pick a thing. And just keep going. I say this a lot in my very first TEDx talk that I gave in South Lake Tahoe. Keep going until your reaction to difference is curiosity instead of judgment. People are different. Different people are different. But God, we are all the same. Everyone is a human with dignity and worth and pain and joy and Everyone deserves to be understood. Understanding is not condoning. I can understand why Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine and deeply disagree with him. Exactly. And that's one of the myths we've got to unlearn, that to understand somebody, you have to agree with them. That's garbage. And that is what leads to all of this. One of the things that leads to this polarization. Mm. Amazing. So what I'm hearing is that what you and Dr. Aaron are doing is attempting to invite people into a more curious space, a space where we could have some some dialogue, however difficult or awkward it is to to really just say, hey, I'm willing to meet you. Like Rumi said, you know, there out there is a field beyond right and wrong. There is a field, you know, meet me there. And I love that because. We, we need to meet in some neutral, safe space. I mean, you know, I, I don't identify as a middle-aged, privileged white man. I identify as kind of an effing old, privileged white man. Fair. <laughs> I mean, middle-aged only if I live to be 130. But, you know, it's like I, I know that I've been that guy. I know that I've, I've was and raised I've been in that girl. South. You know, my, my dad was uh, a journalist. We moved from Birmingham, Alabama when I was a child to Memphis, Tennessee, the year after Dr. King was shot and killed mm -hmm. there. And I just thought the black people were going to kill me. I just, I was afraid. I, I didn't know. I was a child. And, you know, I, I dated a black girl in, uh, high school, Pam, if you're listening ever, honey, you were delightful, but you know, I was willing to, those were in the first years of desegregation really. And yeah. I was, I was a risk taker and I overcame that, you know, but I know, I know that I've been that guy who didn't know things were broken. And our daughter, our one and only child has a degree in cultural anthropology. So mm -hmm. she's right here with you guys. And and uh, she's really helped open my eyes to things that, wow. And, and, and I think that there's fear. If I can speak for Absolutely. the middle and older age white people here, I'm always afraid I'm going to make a huge mistake. And I'm you probably will. I'm going to say black when I should say African-American or you probably will. You know, it's like, oh, my God, I'm so scared and I don't want to be that person. I want to be inclusive and, and, and loving and I want to be. Jesus with skin on yeah. to everybody, you know, and, and it's hard. And I, I think, I mean, so let me take that. Cause like, I want to be Jesus with skin on too, but I think that's actually a really damaging phrase because Jesus was perfect and we're not. 
And so we're going to mess up. Yes, we we're going to screw up. Part of this is getting really comfortable with the phrase. I'm so sorry. I didn't know. Mm. What do I do now? Mm. And apologizing when it matters. Like I say, especially when I'm in all women crowds, people will be like, don't tell women to apologize. I'm like, OK, but yes and no. <laughs> like we need to stop apologizing for things that aren't our fault. Yeah. But if we hurt someone, it doesn't matter what your intention was. You still hurt them. Mm. Like you still hurt them. That's it. I, if you didn't make them feel this way. I'm sorry I used the wrong word. I'm sorry my language hurt you. How can I be better? What can I do? Mm. And this is messy as hell. And one of the reasons that we do this work, and I say a lot, is being a human is really hard and no one teaches us how to do it. There's not like this manual where we show up and it's like, here is how are you human? No, we figure it out together. I learn how to human better because I'm talking to you, John, you've taught me how to you human. And then I'm like, okay, well, that, that makes me think I could human this way in my life. And I show up and I tell you guys how I human, and then you kind of figure it out. We are <clears throat> grand experiments in a lot of ways of spiritual beings having a human experience. We don't know what we're doing. Mm. And I think one of the greatest myths that the Industrial Revolution and the Enlightenment gave us is that we're supposed to know what we're doing. Mm. Like, wow. I, we, we have no clue. And that's okay. We're going to figure it out together and we're going to work it out together. And that means that when I sit here and I'm watching the Oscars and somebody points out to me and says, do you know that they do not have a wheelchair ramp there? And I go, oh, that's a problem that never mm. occurred to me. Or they say all those flashing lights, if they didn't warn somebody, that could really send somebody into physical harm if they're watching on television. Mm. Oh, wow, you're right. I never thought about that because that's not part of my lived experience. But the more I do life with people like my, my friend, Alicia Anderson, who's a great ability advocate, and she has been a wheelchair user her whole life, the more I listen to her and realize her, the more I am now aware all the time where there are and aren't wheelchair ramps. Mm. The more I talk to my friends who are on the autism, who, who are somewhere in the autism world, the more I realize how workplaces are not set up for people who are neurodegenerative. Right. Yeah. The more I talk to working mothers, the more I realize this push to get us back to the office is violence against them. And no mad, no wonder they're all leaving in droves. And mm -hmm. all of these kind of things, because we are not our how to human. We don't change our minds through shaming or statistics. We change it through stories and relationships. Mm. But that is that has been our upbringing. That's how we've been taught to yeah. be amazingly judgmental, oh, God, to yeah. not be curious, we have to, to be right. Yeah. And protect, protect ourselves. I think so much of it is fear. And I love your, your phrase that the, the choices or maybe the circumstances we find ourselves in others, it others us from others. Yeah. I know that's exactly what we're talking about, but that's a beautiful phrase for it. That and it, Oh gosh, it's not mine. The concept of othering is there's brilliant people There's a, that I learned it from and, and I kind of, but in, in summary, really briefly, the idea is that every single is that we are all a lot of things all at once. So like you and I are not just white people. We are white people from possibly different economic backgrounds, definitely different life experiences. I've never lived in Alabama and I was born in 1983. So there's two things that are really different about how we encounter the world. Mm -hmm. And so if we just address this life, we cannot physically look at the world the same way just because we're two white people. So there are times, there are rooms that I am in, there are cultures that I am in that my gender of which I am a lady, it means that I have power and there's others that means I don't. And so kind of whatever your society has decided is normal, if you don't line up with that, you are othered. We've all been othered in some way because all cultures are constructed, I'll say that. So the culture in your family is constructed. I am the only one who votes the way that I vote in my family. 
So in my family of my nuclear family, of whom I adore every single one of them, I am othered by my political persuasions mm. and my mm -hmm. political activism. I am the same as them in terms of this. My brother has a different faith system, so he is othered in his faith system. I am not a parent. Obviously, both my parents and now my brother are a parent. I am othered in that way. So and then in the greater society, it's kind of all that stuff. So the question is never who is right and who is wrong. The question instead should usually be who's in power and who is othered. Mm, wow. And how do we shift that paradigm? You're never going to win. And like, I just I, I hate I grew up in debate. I'm sure a lot of other people did where we're taught to win arguments like this isn't a courtroom. We're not we're not attorneys. Humanity is dialogue. And community and getting to know each other and asking questions and being wrong. I mean, find me someone who has had a marriage who has never in their life said I was wrong and I will find you somebody who is divorced. Yeah, for sure. Good point. But why do we pretend that any other relationship is different? Wow. Wow. Jeez, that was so many amazing points there. Just and, and I think I don't want to harp on this, but I can't help the fact that you know, my parents were white, my grandparents were Irish, and when my great grandmother was what they called French black. Okay. And so, you know, it, it, we have some of our family members have a little darker coloring, and, you know, we inherited all these things that other us that I didn't get to choose, you mm -hmm. know, and we can go, we can take that all the way. To the end, sure. there's lots of things we but, can choose. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, we can even we can even go into victimization. We can go into all of those socio, all these things we've been talking about. But I, I long for that space where I feel expansive and free mm -hmm. to not apologize for myself. I feel like I'm caught in a place where I, I, I don't know, maybe it's me, help me out here. You know, I, I, I don't want to, I don't know. I, I, am I making any sense? I don't want to So apologize I think that's really common, stuff. especially whiteness right now. Yeah, yeah. The whiteness is the thing that we have to apologize for, but. Yeah, yeah. I, and there are people for whom we do. That's just life. There are people for whom we do have to apologize for being raised white and, and having white skin and having white privilege. That's just life. But that's not everybody. Mm. That's not every single person of color you're going to meet wants you to apologize. Mm. Now, nearly every person of color who I'm in relationships with wants me to acknowledge it. They want me to know what my whiteness means because they know what their color particular mm. they know what oh, their race means that's powerful so yeah. they just want me to know what it means and there are times i mean like i joke there are, to use this a different slightly different example so i am very american i was raised in the northeast i have the kind of like bull in a china shop energy of a lot of americans mm -hmm. and whenever i'm out with my irish friends and we are in northern ireland or in dublin or or even in america and they're over i frequently get told to like go to the bar and be the american <laughs> which means that like I'll get drinks faster because I'm pushier than Irish people. I will find us chairs because I have no trouble asking people to like move or asking when people are going to get up and like Irish folks are not, can, you know, they're, they're just not like going to do that. Yeah. My husband is, is my husband would be mortified if it didn't pr benefit him in so many ways. Um, and in some ways I think like I've got some times that I've had my friends who are my dude friends kind of in a, with a world be like, can you go be the lady and get this done? 
And some of it is under, I understand what feminine power brings. I understand that I can manipulate people differently as a woman (laughs) than I can as a dude. And as long as I'm using those powers for good, I think that's okay. So Mm. in a lot of ways, they're asking most people I know who I'm in relationship with and are there people, again, we can't assume that everyone is the same ever, but the people I'm in relationship with want me to use my whiteness for good. They want me to leverage my privilege for their power. They want me to be critical of my whiteness and say, as I'm invited to be on a panel, okay, are there all just white folks here? Should there be other intersections? Are there all able-bodied folks? Are there all skinny folks? Because that's an intersection too we're not talking about enough. You know, is there, are there, is there class differences on this panel? They want me to do that. As I'm going into a job interview, they want me to raise that. As an employer, they want me to be aware of the socioeconomic, cultural, racial factors of who I'm hiring. They want me to know because so much of whiteness has been burying our heads in the sand, especially in the last, in the last couple of years, as more and more people of color are saying like, hey, you've got a ton of power. And our response has been, but not all white people. No chicken. Yes, you have power. I'm real sorry. Like you do. Maybe your life is still shit. Possible. My life's still really hard and I'm upper middle class. My life's still really hard. But you can also say that none of that's comparable. Like my pain is my pain. Your pain is your pain. But I've got power and resources to maybe change my pain in ways that you don't. And I can acknowledge Mm, that. mm. So I think like this kind of guilt and weirdness, people that I know, this is again back to it, guilt's an unproductive emotion. Oh. It doesn't do anything. Right. And so we got to do the work on our own space. This is mindset Mm. work. This is spiritual work. This is in your own skin. I no longer apologize for who I show up as. Mm. But I may apologize for the things I do in who I show up as. But this is who I am. I am upper middle class, married, no kids, raised Protestant. I hold a seminary degree. I'm a massive, massive Liverpool football fan. I absolutely <laughs> hate FIFA and I will watch every minute of the football Um, I believe that ice cream is a spiritual gift from the Lord herself. Like, here is who I am. Right. For, to, to make myself smaller or to apologize for those things denigrates the ability that I may have as a world changer in showing up in who I am. Mm. Now, part of that is sitting in a room. If I'm the only white lady, it means I don't talk. If I'm the only, if I'm the only able-bodied person in the room, I don't talk. If I'm the only, but at the same time, if I'm the only fat person in the room, I know I'm the only fat person in the room and I'm watching how they all deal with me. Mm-hmm. If I'm the only woman in a room full of dudes, I behave differently. I don't show up any less as myself. I don't apologize for who I am, but I'm aware of the social dynamics that I don't speak until I'm spoken to. Depending. I know as a woman when I can show up and it has to be in a dress and heels and when it can be in sweatpants. Mm. I know these things. I'm not apologizing for them. I just know them. So what my hope for you, John, is that as you go on this next chapter of your journey and any of your beautiful listeners, that you can learn in your own skin the difference between being willing to be held accountable and feeling the need to apologize for innately who you are. Mm. talk that's beautiful thank you i i receive that i i want to be able to do that 
Talk just for a few minutes about intersectionality, because you've touched on that a, a, a few times. Love the TED Talks references to that. So talk a little bit about that. For sure. So intersectionality, God, it's one of those buzzwords. You've probably heard it 400 times. So let's define it first. It was coined in the 1980s by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who was a legal scholar. And she came up with the term because she realized in the women's movement, God, every single woman's movement has been utterly brilliant at absolutely excluding women of color, like gr crying out mm -hmm. loud. We were terrible at it in the suffrage movement. We were terrible at it in the 60s. We were terrible at it. So Kimberly's like, okay, well, all women are oppressed. True. But black women are oppressed differently than white women who are oppressed differently than indigenous women. So she is the first one, and she used it to talk about that specific intersection of race and gender. So imagine your life as a cross-stitch. To get the front, you got to get the mess on the back. So truly who we're talking about is the mess on the back. That's who you are. You are all these things all at once. You are red threads and yellow threads and purple threads and everything else. So the deal with intersectionality, though, that we have to really contend with is that into that, we have to understand that different intersections carry different weight of power depending on what society we're in. And this is where you and I already talked about othering. So the world is set up as a default that human means upper middle class or middle class to upper middle class, white man, middle-aged, straight, married, kids, like sports, believes in the need for cars, is a capitalist. Has, like this is the when we say human, when we're designing phones and roads and laws, we mean that that dude. Any way in which your intersections lay outside of that definition means that you're probably othered in some way or flat out oppressed. So there are things that don't move culture to culture. Women are oppressed everywhere. Men are privileged everywhere. Even if you're in a, in a situation in which you're in the minority, you still have more privilege than I do. That's just life. But I have more privilege than most, than any woman of color when I walk into a room. I can, I can carry the crap out of the room, you know, and really kind of do that. But as a, if I'm in women-only spaces, I'm usually pretty othered because I don't have kids, and that's an intentional choice. And I talk about it really loudly because we don't talk enough about women, the default assumption that women are mothers, especially in professional circumstances. I'm trying to help us break away from the fact the first question you ask a woman that you just met is, what are, who are, like, tell me about your kids. Yeah. Because that's not a painful question for me. I'll just make you feel uncomfortable that you asked me that question. <laughs> but I have so many friends that are carrying infertility journeys that I, it's like my personal mission to make sure that they never have to answer that trauma. And in, in, mm. they never have to answer for that. So, you know, and I, I joke and it's, it's in the first TEDx, but again, like I'm a massive Liverpool fan in America. That means very, very little people are, it's much more common that I can bond with someone over, over baseball. But when I'm in the UK, absolutely nobody cares that I love baseball. They don't give, you know, any flyings. They love that I like rugby and, and football. And that's what we do. So it, that's what intersectionality means. Intersection is simply the idea that we are all so many things all at once. But to also acknowledge that different pieces of us carry different power depending on where we are in the world. Wow. Man, we need another show on <laughs> that. So, so good. Well, I... Yeah, just real quickly as we wrap up, because uh, I'm just so fascinated with your work with Dr. Aaron, and I know that you do keynote 
mm-hmm. addresses and the three topics that you you tend to go to are inclusivity, trauma, mm-hmm. which fascinating in your TED talk about that. But then also that Americans are exhausted mm-hmm. because of the Puritans. I had a heart attack two years ago and it was from exhaustion and stress and, Man. you know, living all this stuff. Now, obviously, I survived because I'm here, but... Can you give us like a short little thumbnail of what do you mean by that? So the Puritans were a separatist movement that came over. When you think of Plymouth Rock and the Pilgrims, you're thinking of the Puritans. And their entire life philosophy was driven by their theology, as is very common, a pre-enlightenment and a lot of a lot of religious movements. But they were they did some good things, like I said to you offline. They're why we have such high literacy in the United States, because they believed everyone should read the Bible, including girls. They were the first one of the first religious movements to teach girls how to read. So thank you, Puritans, as a lady. Mm -hmm. But the three things they gave us that are really toxic are their belief that you are a good person if you work hard. You can rest after you're dead. (laughs) And you have to do it all alone. Oh, my gosh. Those are three of the backbones of their theology. Oh, my gosh. That's just my whole psyche right And they've become the backbone of American culture because unlike other places, we never had a we never had a state church. We never had another singular movement to come along and redefine what it meant to be an American. So they were the first settlers that came over and said, this is what it means. And every settlers that came afterwards, they that makes you very financially successful, which then Anywhere in the world gives you a lot of financial power. Mm-hmm. They were able to own the land because they worked it all the time and they summarily executed the people that were already living there. But they were able to keep this power, so they just kept it going. So the founding fathers come over because they're all immigrants, either themselves or their or their families, obviously. So they come over or they're raised in this culture. And that's that's what Jefferson codified. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is not really what we're about. What we're really about is working until we die. And when you listen to people talk about the American superpowers and you talk, you watch all the narratives of the during the Cold War. What it will Mm. tell you is that Mm. America is a superpower because God blessed us because we're hard workers. Mm. Mm. It just keeps going. We never had anything else to counter it. So the way I say it is you are not exhausted because you don't have boundaries. You are exhausted because you are an American. And the choice to have boundaries and the choice to be countercultural of that feels hard and weird because it's countercultural. Mm. It's the most countercultural thing you can do is to say, you know what? I really want to turn my phone off on vacation. Or I'm not interested in a 60-hour-a-week job because I have a five-year-old. Or I'm not interested in that because I like to travel. So we're seeing a slight shift in it now. But this is part of the generation wars. This is part of why you hear all the narratives that millennials and Gen Z are lazy because our generation watched your generation have 95 million heart attacks. I watched my dad have six cardiac events by his 70th birthday Uh. and I took over his company with my little brother and we're both like, we're not living that way. Mm. Yes, I'm taking every single one of my vacation days. Yes, I'm going to work from home some days because I don't feel like the 45 minute commute would be good on my body and I could Mm. be more productive on my couch. And still have more rest. Yes, I'm redefining what work looks like. But it's countercultural, it's painful, and it's weird. So your exhaustion, if a bubble bath doesn't fix it, if one vacation doesn't fix it, if all of that doesn't fix it, it's because of two factors. One, you have to be, you have, you are too exhausted and it's your culture. The other is that we focus too much in America on self-care instead of other care. Really, what this has done is made us is put us in isolation. And the true healing from this exhaustion is community. 
Mm. The other thing Americans mm. can't do is ask for help. So we have to learn that the sum of setting of those boundaries is entering into other care and entering into communities where we can ask for and give help. Mm, mm, mm. My goodness. Oh, gosh. You got to come back on the show. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, uh, we are putting all of your contact information in the show notes. And what's your favorite way to interact with people, the people that are hearing this show and want to dig into what Abby Research is all about, your resources? How do you like to interact the most with people? Well, if folks are YouTube people, we love talking in our YouTube comments. But honestly, the like Instagram DMs are good too. And email, we love talking to people. If uh, you're listening and you've got a podcast, I'd love to be on it and talk to you there too. There's a lot, we love talking. But yeah, I would say YouTube and Instagram are the two best. And you can also hop on our newsletter because we've got some trainings coming up on these kind of things that we'd love to have you join. So I'll make sure that John has the link to our newsletter which comes out once a week. We don't harass you, we promise. But like, as we're talking right now, today's newsletter was about what exactly is Ramadan and how can I help someone else celebrate it? So it's that kind of vibe. And mm. we'd love to have you join us there. Amazing. Dr. Kristen Donnelly, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It was a privilege. Thanks for hanging out with me today on All The Best. If you like the show, be sure to share it out with your family and friends on your social media and drop me a line at john at johnchism.com. I would love to hear from you. I also want to invite you to jump over to my site right now to sign up for my free 31-day motivational email series. It's designed to help you go for all the best in life. If you're needing some real change, fresh motivation and inspiration, this could be just the thing to get Get you going. You can find it at johnchism.com and I'll see you next time.